Good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. Good to be with you tonight. So we're going to continue our series. And I'm just going to give you a warning right now. A few weeks ago, I was sick. And so my voice is just a little bit. So I just need to talk soft, not too soft. But so if I'm just talking to you, it's because I don't want to irritate my voice here and stuff tonight. So uh, let's pray and then let's dive into the scriptures, okay? Holy Spirit, would you just come in this moment? Let the power of your word speak to us. Would you give us spiritual ears to hear what it is that you're saying to us? And Lord, I just pray that as we dive into your word tonight, that you'd speak to each one of us. You know what each one of us needs tonight. And Lord, I just pray that whatever that is, that you would apply it to the right heart in just the right way. We set our hearts together in faith and agreement, silence the, the, the voice of the enemy, and instead just magnify the voice of your spirit in our ears. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is a great time of year. And the reason why it is, is I love holiday seasons. Christmas is my favorite holiday season. If you know me, you know I listen to Christmas music all year, really, just a little bit. Uh, but I love, I love Christmas season. But the reality is, is that the biggest holiday we have, we just celebrated, which is Resurrection Sunday. That's the biggest holiday that we have because without that, I know without the birth of Jesus, there's no resurrection. But without the resurrection of Jesus, Scripture tells us that we are still lost in our sins. But because of the resurrection, we're able to be here. We're able to have new life. And it's just such a powerful thing. And it, I really kind of wish that we would celebrate Easter on the same level that we celebrate Christmas because it's so powerful. Tonight, we're going to talk about the cross and the crucifixion. Pastor Ken was with you a couple of weeks ago, and he focused on stuff leading up to the cross. He took you through why Judas and all that happened with Judas and the trials of Jesus. And he probably took you through about 12 hours or so of Jesus being unjustly tried uh, falsely accused, lied about, betrayed, all of those things. And tonight we're going to pick up. He ended like about eight o'clock in the morning on the day that Jesus would have been crucified. And we're going to pick up there in just a moment. But I wanted to read a verse to you from 1 Corinthians 1.18, because the question we have tonight is why the crucifixion? And 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That cross just seems like foolishness. In Paul's day, when he was writing this, he's writing to people who are thinking, I don't need the foolishness of a cross. I don't need a bloody Savior. That doesn't even make sense. It's not wise. Some people were pursuing wisdom. Some people were pursuing other things. In our 21st century American context, there are people who say, I don't need no Jesus dying for me on the cross. I'm good because they think it's a foolish thing. But what we're going to talk about tonight, as crazy and brutal and horrible and terrible as it is, Paul says it's foolishness to other people, but we understand that it is the power of God for us unto salvation. Did you ever think when you read, when you read the scriptures, sometimes just questions can come to your mind about things. Do you ever think like, why in the world did Jesus have to be executed on a cross? Why that? What was that crucifixion 
all about. We may have heard things growing up. We may have heard things in Sunday school or whatever, but when you really just read it, what was that crucifixion thing all about? Why did Jesus do that? What was he really accomplishing on the cross? And tonight we're going to take a look at that, but I just want to kind of give you a heads up on something. And I think Pastor Ken probably made allusion to it a couple of weeks ago, because I'm going to draw from a all four of the Gospels tonight. And I just want you to be aware of something, which is the Gospel writers had a reason for writing their letters. They had a reason for including certain things, and they had a reason for leaving certain things out. And sometimes people look at the Scripture and they go, oh, wait a minute, those books are contradicting each other. Or why did this one say this, but this one doesn't say it? Something's missing or whatever. And it's not because Scripture is contradicting itself. It's because the writers of Scripture had particular things that they were trying to accomplish in the books they were writing. It's kind of like if I were to tell a story to my 83-year-old mom, and I, or I told the same story to a 33-year-old friend of mine, it would be the same story, but it, I would tell it much differently. If I'm telling my mom a story, my mom, or if she's telling me a story, my mom wants every detail. And I mean every detail. It's the way she tells the story too. If mom tells the story, I get what everyone said. She even inflects her voice to communicate how they said it. She'll give me gestures that they made. She'll give me facial expressions. Every inch of the story she has to tell me. It's the way she tells a story. It's the way she likes to hear a story. Sometimes my wife does that too. The less details, the more frustrated she gets. That's all I'm going to say about my wife tonight. We're, we're done with that. So, but if I were to tell it to one of my 33-year-old friends, uh, they would probably, or maybe even, let's say Pastor Doug, if I were to tell him the same story I tell my mom, he's going to think, I want bullet points and then get to the bottom line. Same story. It's untrue. <laughs> See, you like that? Bullet points. Yes. Meetings are very short. Boom, boom, boom. But it's true, it would be the same story. Nothing would be inaccurate. But what's gonna matter to my mom is gonna be different than what matters to Pastor Doug. What she thinks is funny is gonna be different than what he thinks is funny. He might not care about a certain point because it's not relevant to his context, but for her, it's different. And that's the way that the scripture writers wrote the gospel. So when you see, why did one say something but another one didn't? or they put things in a little bit different order or whatever. It's just that they saw the same thing, but they're highlighting certain things to make a point. Matthew, for example, is writing probably to Jewish people, maybe Jewish religious leaders, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, which is why he starts his book with a genealogy of Jesus and no one else does. Because it doesn't matter to Mark's audience, but it matters to Matthew's audience. And the same is true for the crucifixion account. So when you see us kind of jumping around a little bit, that's the reason why we do that. Before we jump into the crucifixion, I want to rewind just a little bit into Pastor uh, Ken's message because he took you through the trials of Jesus and he took you through the time when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate. And there's something that happens in that moment because there's a crisis moment for the Jewish religious leaders that we read about, but we sometimes pass over. If you remember, Pontius Pilate's there and he has Jesus, and there was a custom that they could 
have one person released at this time of year and so forth. And Pontius Pilate says to them, Matthew 27, verse 15, he says, during the, feast of, during the feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd, whomever they wanted. At that time, they had in custody a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. So after they had assembled, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? You may not know this, but Barabbas is an Aramaic name. When Pilate says this to the Jewish leaders, he is offering them a choice. Because the name Barabbas, Bar means son of, and Abba means father. So he says to them, do you want Jesus, son of the father, or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ. Let me put it another way. Do you want Jesus, son of the Father, or do you want Jesus, son of the Father? Which Jesus do you want? And the Jewish leaders do not know that Pilate, who has no idea, is offering them a prophetic choice. And it's a crisis moment for them. And you know that they end up making the wrong choice. And when, when Pilate does this, when you read the Gospels, it's like there's this app running in the background all the time. It's not really in the background. It's there all the time, but it's like an app on your iPhone. And the app in this case is this question, who is Jesus? If you read the book of Mark, you know that there are 16 chapters in the book of Mark. And Jesus throughout the book is trying to get his disciples to figure out who in the world he is. Halfway through the book, about Mark chapter 8, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give a bunch of different options. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Finally, the apostle Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's like, Jesus is like, finally, you finally got it. It took a full half of the book for Jesus to get the 12 guys who were close to him and with him to figure out who in the world he was. That app of who is Jesus is running all throughout the Gospels. Even after they figure out who Jesus is, that app is still going because they still have their moments of doubt. That app, who is Jesus, is running through the entire crucifixion too. And we're going to see it as we look at stuff because you're going to notice along the way that the people who should get who Jesus is don't get him at all. And the people least likely to get who Jesus is they're the ones that end up picking up on who he is. So Matthew chapter 27, let's jump into verse 24. It says, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, so he's offered them the choice, they've made their choice and said, we want Barabbas, that son, crucified Jesus, the one who was called the Christ. Then Pilate saw that he could do nothing and instead a riot was starting. So he took some water washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. You take care of it yourself. Now, there's something interesting going on that I'm pretty sure Pastor Ken talked with you about, and that's Pilate's wife, because Pilate's wife is having prophetic dreams about Jesus. She's very troubled. She says to Pilate, don't mess with this guy. He's showing up in my dreams, and he's really troubling me a lot. And when you see that, it's interesting. Notice who God is speaking to in this moment. 
He's not speaking to the Jewish leaders. He's speaking to Pontius Pilate's wife. I believe those were prophetic nudges from the Lord about Jesus. That's who God's speaking to. That app is running in the background there. Who is Jesus? And she may not have it all figured out, but she's hearing God's voice, whereas the Jewish religious leaders, they're not hearing. Picks up in verse 25. In reply, all the people said, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after Jesus had been flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And then the governors, that's, that's Pilate, then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into his residence and gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after braiding a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and kneeling before him. What a prophetic moment this is. Kneeling before him, they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him repeatedly on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. That moment is so prophetic because scripture tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess for real that Jesus Christ is Lord. These guys are doing it in a mocking way and they have no idea that they're foreshadowing a future day when it's actually gonna happen and they're gonna confess it from the heart. But they lead him away to crucify him. And crucifixion is brutal. I don't know if you've ever seen artwork that involves the crucifixion. If you watch The Passion of the Christ, there's a whole lot of stuff in there that's pretty accurate as to what crucifixion would have, been look, would have looked like. Sometimes we get artists' renderings, and the artists' renderings have Jesus up on a cross high off of the ground. And yes, he's got the crown of thorns, and there's blood, and there's the indication of suffering, and there's the two criminals on either side, but there's a certain majesty to it in a sense where Jesus is high and lifted up. And I understand why artists do that because they're trying to convey certain things and, and, and they're trying to perhaps give a feeling, a message, an ethos with what it is that they're communicating. But crucifixion was dirty and painful and gross and brutal. And it wasn't quite like you see rendered in paintings that people do of that crucifixion scene. The flogging that Jesus would have endured was intensely painful. Pastor Sam on Sunday referenced the cat of nine tails that they would have put bone and metal, maybe glass, stuff like that into. And the Romans were the ones who were flogging Jesus. It was not the Jews. The Jews had a rule that you could not do more than 39 lashes. You stopped at 39 because you couldn't do more than 40, so we're going to stop at 39. But the Romans were the ones who were flogging Jesus. They didn't have a 39 rule. So Jesus may well have been whipped more than 39 times. And if you watch the Passion of the Christ movie, they would whip with that cat of nine tails, which would intentionally catch the flesh, and they would pull back. And there were squads of, of soldiers that that was their job. They were executioners. There were four of them, and there was one who was called an exactor mortis, meaning he's the one that made sure that the execution was carried out according to whatever specifications had been given. 
And these guys were allowed to just let their bloodlust run wild. I can imagine that they probably drank a lot because you do not get to inflict so much pain without it affecting your soul. And I can only imagine how much they had to drink themselves up before they got into that place of, now I can go after someone and just let my bloodlust run wild. And they would inflict that cat of nine tails and pull back and the flesh would just literally tear right off of the back and the ribs and the side. And that's what it was intended to do, to open as many wounds as possible. In fact, a lot of times people who endured the flogging, they didn't even live through it. They just died because they bled out and the pain and the shock and all that they had endured. If they survived the beating, which can you imagine being just your hands tied up and you can't get away from it and you have to endure the pain of it, there is no escape. If you survive that, then as one who's going to be crucified, you were supposed to carry what's called the patibulum out to the place where you were going to be crucified. Sometimes uh, it gets portrayed that Jesus carried an entire cross. It's not really how it worked. This crucifixion stake itself was kind of permanently in the ground. And you, if you were a victim, would be strapped to or have to carry a patibulum out to, that's the cross beam, out to the place where once you got out there, they would hoist that patibulum up onto the crucifixion stake. They would affix it there. They would put the sign over you for whatever it is you were accused of. And that is where you would then be crucified with maybe your feet being tied or, or nailed sometimes. Very often they tied people to the crosses because the beating they received was enough to end their life. And all they had to do was hang there and be tied there. And crucifixion really was about asphyxiation. Because once you've been beaten to that point and you've been hoisted up on the cross and your legs are, your feet are kind of put to one side, what ends up happening is you need to push yourself up in order to take a breath. But every time you push yourself up to take a breath, the pain is so excruciating. You ever had it where it's hard to breathe? I was in the hospital in 2017. I had the flu and pneumonia. Boy, was that a joyful time. And they put oxygen. I walked into the emergency room. While we were walking in, my wife was on a mission because she knew I was sick. So she was going 100 miles an hour, and I was walking like I was about 100 years old. And I got her attention, and I said, I can either walk or talk, but not both. And I got into the emergency room, and they put that little thing on my finger, and they figured out what my oxygen level was, and they all, ah, 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 and they put me on oxygen. And it was amazing. I didn't realize how just a little change in my oxygen level could just wear me right out. Now, just imagine that you've been beaten almost to the point of death and you're on that cross and you're hung in such a way with your arms outstretched that you cannot get a breath, but you need to get a breath and you finally can push yourself up and you take one breath and it's so painful that you probably lose the breath that you took because of all that it is that you're enduring. That patibulum was probably about eight feet long and in Jesus' case, they didn't tie him to it, they nailed him to it. Because nailing him to it, nailing someone to that patibulum and that crucifixion stake, that would increase the blood flow and it would speed up their death. And crucifixion was so brutal that sometimes the bloodlust of the execution squad would just, they might crucify you upside down 
or they might take. And I don't want to be gross and just speak in a way that makes you think, oh my goodness. But sometimes they just to humiliate, they would take something and they would just pierce someone's genitals just as because they wanted to humiliate them as much as possible. Jesus was not hoisted way up high on a cross either. His feet would have been probably right about at this level. And the reason for that is because the Romans wanted you to be as humiliated as possible. So they wanted people to come by and be able to look you eye to eye and insult you while you're there on the cross. That's where Jesus really was, was down low so that everybody who walked by could make fun of him and say, yeah, that's the guy who said that he could save other people. Why don't you save yourself, dude? Why don't you get yourself off of that cross? There's an interesting thing, though, that happens, too, as Jesus is carrying that patibulum out to the place where he's going to be crucified. He cannot make it on his own. And it's not on the screen, but verse 32 of Matthew 27 says, as they were going out, they found a man from Cyrene named Simon, whom they forced to carry his cross. He is not a Jewish man. What is so interesting about this, and this is the only time he's mentioned, it's almost like an allusion to every tribe and tongue and nation. As Simon picks up that patibulum and carries it out the rest of the way, it's almost like Jesus saying, this cross is for everyone. This cross is for every tribe and tongue and nation. And then he gets out there and they finish what they're doing in terms of crucifying him. Crucifixion was usually reserved for lower class people, criminals. And that's exactly how they viewed Jesus. In fact, the more wealthy, upper-class people, they didn't want to talk about crucifixion. They knew it happened. They knew it was those people down there, but they didn't really want to talk about it in polite circles. That's what crucifixion was reserved for, and that's exactly how they viewed Jesus. So why did Jesus go through all of this? Why did he endure this, the humiliation of the cross where I know we read that they said that after they took the, that robe off of him, they put Jesus' clothes back on him. But the reality is when he gets out to the cross, they have his clothes and they're gambling for them, which means Jesus was crucified naked, which is what they usually did. Sometimes they would put a loincloth on in deference to the Jews. But Jesus would have been crucified naked. And when you're being crucified, you lose control of everything your bladder, your bowels, your bleeding, and you're attracting insects and animals and you can't shoo things away. It's such a horrible moment. Why would Jesus endure something like this? I mean, why did he have to go through all of this? Couldn't, I, couldn't God just have like say, you know, I'm just gonna start over. You know, humanity's kind of messed up the works and so forth, so instead of doing anything like this, I'm just gonna start over. Could he have done something like that? Well, maybe he could have. Or could he just change the rules? I mean, could, could God have just been like, okay, no harm, no foul. I know he sinned. I know this stuff is going on, but I'm just going to change the rules and just declare that we're done. We're going to do something different. But for whatever his reasons are, God doesn't just declare himself to be the winner over sin. He actually, it's like he wants to play out the game on the enemy's territory. He wants to win it there. And he wants to win it with the team that he actually has now, not start over with a different team. That was always his heart. Even when you look back on the flood, I know that there was judgment and a lot of people lost their lives, but Noah and his family are the ones that God starts over with. But Noah was highly flawed. Even in the Old Testament, God was not going to 
put the game back in the box and start over with something new. His goal was always, I'm going to win the game with this people, with this team that I have out on the field. And I love what Romans 8, 3 says, especially in the New Living Translation, because it really, to me, conveys the heart of God as to why he decides this is the route I want to go. It says that God sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. That's why God goes through this. He says, I'm going to defeat the power of sin, but I'm not going to do it by starting over or just making a declaration. I'm going to go down and become one of them, and I'm going to win it on the enemy's territory, on his turf. And that's why Jesus goes through what he goes through. And while he's on that cross, Jesus says seven things, and we're going to look at them. We're going to spend some more time on some of them than others. But he says seven things, and all of them are important for different reasons in different ways. And uh, we're going to bounce through a few of the different books, like I told you, because different writers emphasize different things. And we're not exactly sure of the order, but the most accepted order of the words is the one that I'm going to give you. The first thing Jesus says as he's on that cross is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Like I said, Jesus is on a cross. It's very low to the ground. He's got two criminals on either side. And the goal was so that people could come by and they could insult him eye to eye, face to face, that they could actually spit on him if they wanted to. And the common response, if you were hanging on a cross being executed, your common response to the insults hurled at you would be to hurl insults right back at the people who are insulting you. But Jesus doesn't do that. To the best of my knowledge, there's no recording of anyone else ever on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. There's no words of forgiveness, but Jesus utters words of forgiveness. It's almost like he's speaking about what it is he's doing, that he's making a way for their and for our sin to be dealt with once for all time. He's given this allusion to this is what I'm about. This cross is about your forgiveness. There's one other place where a line like this appears, and that's in Acts chapter 7, where a guy named Stephen is being executed for his faith. And he must have looked back in his mind's eye to Jesus on that cross, and he says the same words about people who are throwing stones at him to kill him. He says, forgive them. What an amazing line when someone is murdering you unjustly, and your thought is, Father, forgive them. When you think of that cross, that's what he's saying to each one of us. I'm up here for this, for my father to forgive you. That's the first saying that he utters. And I think it's important that it's first because it gets to the heart of part of what Jesus was doing on the cross. Then there's a second saying that he offers. And we only have so much time, so I can't slow down as much as I'd like to. But I love this moment Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we rightly so, we're getting what we deserve for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me 
in paradise. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, or if you read King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, or very truly, I tell you, when you see Jesus make one of those statements, you can know that what he's going to say after that is going to be difficult for people to understand or difficult for them to accept. This is one of those moments. Here Jesus is being executed like a criminal because that's just how they viewed him. And scripture doesn't specify too much about these criminals other than we know they were probably thieves and did certain things. They probably also took up arms against Rome. So they were probably Jewish guys. And they probably grew up in faithful Jewish homes and they turned out in a way that their parents never thought they would turn out. And now they find themselves in this moment on either side of God himself on the cross. And what's interesting about this, remember I said that app is running, who is this Jesus? The Jewish leaders don't get who Jesus is. The ones who had the, the Old Testament completely memorized, the ones who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, they still don't get who Jesus is. But a criminal, a low-class criminal next to Jesus on the cross, he gets who Jesus is. It makes me think of John chapter 5 when Jesus says to the religious leaders, you study the scriptures all the time because you think in them that you have eternal life, but you won't come to me so that I can give you life. Here it is in this moment. This criminal will come to me to receive life, but all you religious leaders mocking me and watching me be crucified, you won't come. And what's hard for people to, to grasp, to accept, is that this guy sees who Jesus is and he declares that he's a king. He didn't say the words, you're a king, but he says, when you come into your kingdom, so he believes that Jesus is a king, that he has a kingdom, and that he actually has the power to bring this man into his kingdom. And Jesus' response is this, yeah, today you will be with me in paradise. What's hard for people to accept is that this guy who had nothing he could offer Jesus, couldn't get baptized, didn't speak in tongues, no good works, no tithe, nothing he could offer Jesus. And Jesus just turns to him and says, yeah, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus immediately accepts and forgives without anything in return. All he wants, which is the same thing he wants from us, all he wants is a heart that knows it needs him. Such an amazing moment. Saying number three on the cross, we're going to jump over to John 19, 25. It says, standing beside Jesus' cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, it's probably John, when he saw them standing there, he said to his mother, woman, look, here is your son. And then he said to his disciple, look, here is your mother. And from that very time, the disciple took her into his own home. I got to go quickly on this one, but when Jesus says, you ever read the scriptures and wonder why Jesus always refers to Mary as woman? Have you ever tried to call your mother woman? If I called my mother woman, actually my wife would be the one to knock me out, not my mother. Don't call your wife woman either, by the way. When Jesus says in this moment, woman, it's not how he would usually address his mom. It's almost like Jesus is distancing himself a little bit from his mother because he knows his future is going to be different. 
and he knows he's gonna have to entrust her to someone else's care. If you jump forward in your mind a couple of chapters of John chapter 21, you remember that there's this moment where Peter and Jesus are talking. Jesus has restored Peter. And then he tells Peter, basically, Peter, you're going to be murdered. You're going to be executed for your faith too. And Peter does what I would do. And you, if you've heard me talk, you've heard me talk about this before. I totally feel Peter's pain because Peter looks at John after Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be executed for your faith. Peter looks at John and says, what about him? Which is totally what my response would be. As I've said before, if I were in that moment, I would say, Jesus, if I'm getting executed, we're all getting executed, <laughs> not just me. But in that moment, I think Jesus, because Jesus ends up saying to Peter, you know what? Whatever I do with him, that had nothing to do with you. You just follow me. Because I think Jesus was thinking, what you don't know, Peter, is I'm going to entrust the most important earthly person in my life to that guy right there. He's got a different calling, and it's very important to me. And in this moment on the cross, John gets his orders. He did other things too, and I know he, he ended up being exiled, and he wrote letters and did amazing things, but I think one of the important things that you only read in this passage right here is that Jesus entrusts to John the most important person in his life, and that's his mom, because without an obedient Mary, we don't even have this moment. So Jesus says, mother, behold your new son, son, behold your mother. That's the third saying he utters on the cross. And I think that's, I think that's important for Jesus's heart, for his mother and all that that meant. Then there's saying number four, uh, verse, uh, Matthew 27, verse 45 says, now from noon until three, so Jesus is, gets on the cross at nine in the morning. But three hours later, noon until three, give or take, they didn't speak about time exactly the same way as we do. We tend to be more concerned about the specific details. It was about noon until three, darkness came over all the land. Darkness is a sign of judgment. At about three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you don't know where that comes from, it is Psalm 22. It is the very first verse in Psalm 22. You remember I said the app is running. Who is Jesus? And a lot of people talk about in this moment that Jesus is being forsaken by the Father and all that that might mean. But there's also another dynamic that's going on here because Jesus was a rabbi. And when Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22, which goes on to describe the crucifixion of the Messiah, the Jewish religious leaders would have known what Psalm 22 was all about. And when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In their minds, they will run through the entire Psalm 22. It's like Jesus saying, this is who I am. I'm quoting this verse. Think of the Psalm. I'm fulfilling everything you see in that Psalm. I am fulfilling when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is ultimately declaring to them that he is the Messiah because that app is still running. And the Jewish religious leaders aren't getting it. But the criminal on the cross gets it. Pilate's wife is getting it. And we're going to come back around to another one in just a moment. Sayings 5 and 6, we're going to combine those together in John 19. She says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
That's another moment where that who are you thing is coming to pass because that's an allusion to an Old Testament passage that they would have known related to the suffering servant. I thirst. He's given him another hint again as to who he is. And then it says a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. And when he'd received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. The three best words in all of scripture. It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus finished what the father had told him to do. Pastor Ken and I had a conversation about what this passage means to him. Whenever he reads this, he knows what his personality is and all that you want to accomplish. You may have the same thing, all that you want to accomplish for God, all that you want to do, everything that you have laid out, man, I'd really like to, and you can fill in the blank. Can you imagine Jesus, God in flesh, maybe thinking, could I spend a little bit more time? Could I touch another person? Could I heal another person? Maybe raise another person from the dead? Is there more that needs to be preached? But he gets to this moment and he says, you know what? I fulfilled what the Father wanted me to fulfill in my life, in my teaching, in my miracles, in my suffering, in this cross. I have done it. It is all finished. And as Pastor Ken and I were talking, there's just this thing in us that needs to echo what Jesus did. You know what, God, you've called me to do whatever it is you've called me to do, and I don't have to worry about accomplishing more. I don't have to worry about what somebody else thinks I should do or compare myself to them. I just need to do what you've called me to do. Like Jesus himself, I just need to be satisfied knowing that I filled, fulfilled the Father's goal for me, and that's it. Jesus fulfills what the Father wanted him to do on the cross. It is finished. All was done. And then saying seven, we're going to jump to Luke 23. And it says some of the same language as this other verse because it's a different book, but it was about now noon. Darkness came over the land. There was an earthquake until three in the afternoon because the sun's light failed. And then this line, the temple curtain was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said this, he breathed his last. That curtain separated the most holy place from the holy place. And in that moment, it tears in two. And there are two things that are being conveyed in that moment. The first one a lot of us realize, which is a new way has been made to access God. There's a direct way that's been made. And when I read this moment, I think back to Sinai. If you think about Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, God gets his people out of Egypt. They go into the desert and he meets them at Mount Sinai. And he says to the people, will you come and approach the mountain? And what do the people say? No, we don't want to. We want Moses to go for us instead. You realize that it was never God's goal to give his people a book or tablets. He wanted them to have his immediate voice immediate access to his presence, but they won't do it. And instead they send Moses and instead of his immediate voice, they get tablets. They get a law in writing, which was good, but it wasn't what God wanted. And in this moment, as the temple curtain is tearing, it's like God saying, this is what I always wanted. Way back on Sinai, I always wanted to have immediate access to you. I always wanted you to be able to come directly to me, to hear my voice and not have to have a priest come on your behalf or something of that nature, but for you to be directly connected with me. 
in that moment, the tearing of that curtain says there's been a new and living way made so that I can access relationship with God the Father. But there's also another thing being conveyed, and that is it is a powerful moment of judgment because for the Jewish religious leaders, the temple was the center point of God's presence. That's where the presence of God dwelled. And when that temple curtain tears, it's like God saying, this doesn't matter anymore. Anybody can come into that most holy place because I'm not here anymore. It's a sign of judgment to the Jewish religious leaders. It doesn't even matter who goes in the Holy of Holies. I'm not here anymore. You can have this building because you now become the temple of God. It's him putting his spirit in you, which was the entire goal from the beginning all the way going back to Sinai immediate access to God and his immediate access to you. And Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You remember when Jesus is before Pilate. Remember, Pilate says, which Jesus do you want? Do you want Jesus, son of the Father, Barabbas, or do you want Jesus, son of the Father? And you get to the very end of all the crucifixion stuff, and there's an unlikely revelation that takes place. Notice, Pilate's wife is kind of tuning into who Jesus is, while the spiritual leaders of Israel don't. The criminal on the cross gets who Jesus is, but the Jewish religious leaders, they don't. And probably a guy who was part of the crucifixion squad in Matthew 27, 54, says, it says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were extremely terrified and said, truly, this one was God's son. The Jewish religious leaders chose the son of this father. But all these other people who were more unlikely, they actually acknowledged the son of of the Father, Jesus. So Jesus, they, they realize it in that moment, and Jesus says, in your hands I commit my spirit. And then what happens? He goes into the tomb, and I just want to touch off a couple of quick things because I know people always ask about it. What happened after Jesus got into the tomb? The cross and the crucifixion, it's amazing what accomplished there. But he said it is finished, and then he gives up his spirit. What happened while he was in the tomb? And sometimes people preach and say, well, then Jesus descended into hell and he suffered for us on our behalf. But the challenge is that sometimes things preach, but they're not necessarily true. Jesus was not suffering in hell on your behalf and my behalf. Because when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. I finished everything I needed to. Where that comes from is, any of y'all grew up quoting the Apostles' Creed? Apostles' Creed is great. But the early editions of the Apostles' Creed don't say the line, he descended into hell. That became a later edition that really wasn't intended to reference hell anyway. When Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. And Jesus said to his Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He didn't say I got a little bit more to do in hell. Father, I'm coming to you. And the thief on the cross next to him, Jesus didn't say wait, I got to go to hell for three days and I'll come back and get you. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus experienced what you experience when you go by way of the grave. 
immediate access back to his heavenly Father. And there's one other incident I just want to reference because it's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. But it's also one that I wish the Scripture writers had talked a little bit more about. You ever read certain passages and think, that's all you're going to say about that is just that one line? So I'm going to read it to you because we read over it, but it's one that I stop on all the time. Matthew 27, 51. Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. We talked about that. Earth shook. Rocks were split apart. Verse 52. And tombs were opened. Hello. And the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. Verse 53. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And Matthew goes on and talks about other stuff. And I want to call time out right there. That's amazing. Can you imagine you're in the Holy See, you're in Jerusalem in your house and a dead person come knock on your door? That's a story to tell right there, okay? That's an amazing moment. And Matthew just doesn't say anything more about it. I want to say, Jesus, really? You couldn't tell me a little bit more? That's what I want to see replayed. I want to see the look on people's faces when saints showed up and proclaimed Jesus. But what this passage of Scripture says to us is this. First of all, Jesus' resurrection resurrects all kinds of stuff in our lives. His resurrection brings life to every aspect of our being. But it also says this, not only was Jesus resurrected as first fruits of the resurrection, but these saints were resurrected as well. And if Jesus' resurrection resurrected them, then there's coming a day when you and I will be resurrected too. If we go by way of the grave, we get immediate access to the Father, but there's coming a day when that body that gets sown into the ground, corrupted, will actually be raised and resurrected. That's what that passage is all about. It's Jesus saying, the power of my resurrection is gonna someday resurrect you too. The resurrection of Jesus and other saints, it's a foretaste of our future resurrection. So what is Jesus accomplishing in all this? I wanna sum it up. What is he accomplishing in all? Yes, he's accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, he's making a way for us to have direct access to the Father. All of those are true, but there's a theme that bookends all of Scripture. And it begins in Genesis chapter 3, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So God shows up. Humanity has fallen. And he addresses Adam. And he addresses Eve. And he addresses the serpent. And to the serpent, he says... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that cross moment was the crushing of the head of the serpent. And then in the middle of Scripture, so to speak, the Apostle Paul gives this one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Colossians 2, that says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Here's the punchline. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through the cross, Jesus defeated the powers of darkness in our ultimate enemy, death. That's what he was doing, was defeating the powers of darkness. It was him going on to their territory saying, I'm going to beat you right here on your home field. 
and I'm going to triumph over you through something you would least expect me to triumph over you with, and that is an execution stake. That's how I'm going to triumph over you. And the bookend in Revelation occurs in chapter 12, where John writes and says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by what? The blood of the lamb. And the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives even unto death. What Jesus accomplished on that cross was defeating the powers of darkness and the power of death so that you and I could walk in complete freedom with full access to him, totally defeating the enemy. That we get to be the people through whom Jesus defeats the enemy over and over and over again until the day when he comes and winds up time and we see him face to face and that evil is no more. That's what the cross was all about.